Meta has spent upwards of $50 billion developing the metaverse. But will it pay off? Go inside the company in a new three-part series, From Facebook to Meta, Zuckerberg's Big Bet, in the Tech News Briefing feed from The Wall Street Journal. A few weeks ago, The Wall Street Journal featured an article about a man who was mining Bitcoin from a computer in his house. The computer was working so hard, it was heating up the entire room. Bitcoin put your computer through a lot of calculations. And many of us are spending most of our time at home these days. So the man found a way to use all that energy coming off of his computer. He siphoned it to heat a greenhouse and grow basil and cherry tomatoes. That's how much energy his computer was wasting. And it's not just the Bitcoin guy. All of the devices we're using give off excess energy. How many times have you noticed your laptop scorching your thighs? Collectively, we lose billions of dollars every year because of this so-called waste heat. It got me thinking about futuristic alternatives that could work to reduce that waste. So I reached out to an expert. I'm Marvin Cohen. I'm university professor of physics at the University of California at Berkeley. Dr. Cohen explained that this waste heat from all of our devices happens because of friction, too much friction from electrons. The electrons go down the wire and they bump into things, sort of. And the wire is heated, so they get knocked around. And that gives you resistance and the wire gets hot. Cohen says that friction is called electrical resistance. And it's just what happens when you conduct electricity. It's normal. It means that some of the energy gets lost. But there is a way to get around it, to manipulate the electrons so the wires don't get hot and energy doesn't get lost. So if you could bring them together and keep them together, you'll have a superconductor. Superconductivity, the ability to conduct electricity without any kind of interference or electrical resistance. Materials that are perfect conductors of energy. Dr. Cohen says it's really hard to bring the electrons together to get them to pair up like this. You have to find the right material and then put them under extreme conditions, super cold or high pressure. But when you do, these materials become almost magical. They conduct energy without electrical resistance. They're perfect conductors of electricity. And if we could get that to happen, could figure out how to make that happen on the regular, superconductivity could change the world. Cohen says it would mean super high-speed trains that can go as fast as planes. And it could make our energy problems almost disappear. If you could hook up Niagara Falls to Berkeley and get all the electricity from Niagara Falls to Berkeley without any losses, it would be incredible. We could even make a space rocket that could get us to the outer reaches of our solar system. Forget about Mars, maybe we can go to Jupiter. (laughs) Basically, superconductivity is the holy grail of physics. But like the holy grail, superconductivity has been just out of reach. From the Wall Street Journal, this is the future of everything. I'm Janet Babin. Today on the podcast, 
why scientists have been on the quest for superconductivity for so long, and whether the latest advances will jettison us to Jupiter or send us all back to the physics lab. WSJ Special Access gives you a front row seat to some of the Wall Street Journal's most exciting content, like The Quirkier Side of Life, a new series that features the fun, surprising stories our reporters come across. The chief executive walks 10,000 barefoot steps every day. He recalls stepping on a bee, which put him off earthing for a couple of days, but he got back to it. Check out The Quirkier Side of Life on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. The science of superconductivity happens on the subatomic level. So to understand what's happening here, we're going to have to take a quick trip back down high school science class memory lane. Electricity is caused by electrons moving as a current in metal. But even though they're moving as a current, there's a lot of interference going on. Again, they're bumping against atoms that are vibrating. And they create that electrical resistance we talked about. More than 100 years ago, a scientist was messing around with mercury and he cooled it down really cold, like they do in physics, close to absolute zero, negative 459 degrees Fahrenheit. And when he did that, the mercury suddenly lost all that electrical resistance. All at once, boom, gone. That was like magic. And at the time, it was unexplainable. So scientists started to try and figure out what was going on here. In the 1930s, another scientist called Meisner found that if he cooled a metal down, it would also expel its magnetic field. Eventually, scientists discovered that if you put these materials near a magnet, it would levitate. That is now called the Meisner effect. These two findings are now considered the key properties of superconductivity. One, a material, often a metal, loses all its electrical resistance. And two, it expels its magnetic field, allowing magnets to float. Both of these findings won their respective researchers a Nobel Prize. In the 50s, three scientists, Bardeen, Cooper, and Schrieffer, developed a scientific theory for why this was happening, why some metals under super, super cold temperatures would become superconductors. Dr. Marvin Cohen at UC Berkeley says it's because instead of the electrons repelling each other, when it gets really cold, they pair up, like they're at a dance party. But he explains it's kind of like a dance party during COVID-19. The pairs are binding, but they're far apart from each other. You're 15 feet away. So between you and your partner, let's say you're both wearing red hats, so you know each other. Between you and your partner, there may be two other people with blue hats, and they'll come in between. So it looks like a real mixture of people, but they always are connected to the person with the same color hat. So these electrons are dancing, and one takes the lead, pulling the other electron along. So let's say you bump into the wall and bounce off. 
So that would take energy away from us. So what I do is I bounce in the other direction. And even though I have no wall that I'm bouncing into, we are coupled so strongly that I bounce the other way. So in this dance, even though it looks really strange, it's very coherent. And these pairs go through together as big bunches, and then they can travel through the material and be superconducting. As a pair, they have less interference with the other atoms and can flow smoothly as a current. Let's say you get a ring of metal and you get a current going around and you keep it cold, it'll go around forever. It means the age of the universe. It won't decay. So an endless current. The theory is called the BCS theory, named after those scientists, Bardeen, Cooper, and Schrieffer. They got the Nobel Prize for that in 1972. It's a fantastic theory, and it has everything in it that one needs. And every time it's been challenged, it has been successful. Scientists now had a workable theory to understand how superconductivity worked. And it could explain how an endless current could be sent an infinite distance without wasting any energy. Now, researchers started developing some ways to use it. Like in magnetic resonance imaging, MRIs, that can take powerful images of the body. They have superconducting magnets inside that create the magnetic field needed to take these pictures. And engineers started building maglev trains, short for magnetic levitation. Using superconducting magnets and that Meisner effect, these trains float above the tracks and can go very fast, up to 375 miles per hour. But here's the thing. To make the magnets and the MRIs superconductive, they need to be cooled down with liquid helium. That's a pricey resource that's becoming increasingly scarce. Same with the magnets on the maglev trains. And negative 459 degrees is not very feasible for daily use. So the race was on to try to churn up the heat, to find some way to make the technology cheaper and more practical to use. The Holy Grail was to accomplish a superconductive state at room temperature. In 1986, a major development came out of an IBM lab near Zurich, Switzerland. Alex Mueller and George Bednors discovered high-temperature superconductivity in a new class of materials that could speed up computers, carry electricity into our homes more efficiently, and make high-speed levitating trains a reality. These two scientists reportedly tried out more than 150 ingredient combinations before they came up with one that achieved superconductivity, copper oxide, also known as cuprates. A copper oxide was found where superconductivity occurred at 405 degrees below zero. Still cold, but by scientific standards, a giant leap forward. The team won the Nobel Prize for that in 1987. Researchers could now reliably recreate superconductivity under slightly warmer temperatures. With success came confidence. The scientific community became convinced, well, if we got this far, it would only be a matter of time before we could create this effect at higher temperatures whenever we wanted. Interest in superconductivity exploded. Physicists were the new rock stars. 
They all came together at the New York Hilton Hotel for the annual meeting of the American Physical Society. That meeting would come to be known as the Woodstock of Physics. Instead of attracting the usual couple hundred researchers, thousands showed up. Everyone who was anyone in science was there. Absolutely. I was at the Woodstock of Physics. It was fun to be a physicist at the time. It was really euphoric. We thought the sky would be the limit for superconductivity. Dr. Cohen from Berkeley was there, too. We rushed to that meeting, and it was unlike any March meeting I'd ever been to. And the place was crawling with people. Hotel resources were overwhelmed by all these scientists. told that uh, downstairs, the snack bar will be open until about half midnight. Spillover rooms with televisions had to be set up for those who didn't fit inside the banquet hall. In old videotapes of the meeting, scientist after scientist approaches the overhead projector. Papers akimbo, mustaches all trimmed, blazers unbuttoned by this point. Thank you. Today, I would like to report the, uh, my quest for high-temperature superconductors. I'd like, if I could, just to show one more transparency. I know it's late. I'll help to, I hope to make this talk worth your wait. Okay, we have perhaps uh, time for a few questions. It's only three, you know. <laughs> the marathon of presentations kept on going well past three. People hung out till dawn. Dr. Cohen says the meeting was exhilarating. And everybody was jumping up and down, excited, and talking about how, in just such a short period of time, they're going to get up to higher temperatures. Back home in Berkeley, Dr. Cohen, still buzzing from that meeting, went to dinner at Chez Panisse with colleagues, all of them convinced that a superconductivity breakthrough was close at hand. And we ate upstairs where they had a paper tablecloth. And we wrote all over it, and we started betting on when they would reach room temperature. And we all put in our bets and we all lost because people said six months, a year, two years, you know, things of that kind. And also we bet on when they'd have a complete theory. Six months to two years. That's what they thought. And so they threw themselves into the work. The effect of the Woodstock of physics is tough to overstate, says Jamil Tyre Kelly, a staff scientist at the California Institute of Technology, Caltech. Every university, every scientist, material scientist, chemist, electrical engineer, and physicist dropped whatever they were doing and jumped into this problem uh, because this was going to change the world. Tyra Kelly calculated that collectively, university physics departments have spent $25 billion on the superconductivity problem over the ensuing three-plus decades. Universities started hiring like crazy because, well, this was going to be the future. They gutted physics departments and turned them into superconductivity departments because the technology of superconductivity was going to be such a big deal that if we didn't have faculty that could cover the broad spectrum of what was going to come out of this cuprate superconductivity, we were going to be dead. And all the money was flowing into this thing. Companies were everywhere. Since the frenzy of that conference, well, it's been kind of a letdown. Like the promise of Yasgur's farm, 
the Woodstock of physics failed to live up to its hype. So what happened? Tyre Kelly says physicists tried to fit the work into their specialty to recreate their own theories, each convinced they'd solved superconductivity. But the electrons had other ideas. The electron didn't give a damn about anybody at any university or what degree they had. It was doing what it was going to do. And it did a little bit of every subfield. And nobody was equipped to handle it. And so basically, you, you have this disaster here where, where hundreds, hundreds of thousands of papers and no results. Overcoming the temperature barrier has turned out to be a lot more difficult than physicists imagined. Then, in 2020, a breakthrough. A lab at the University of Rochester reported that they'd discovered the world's first superconductor at room temperature. So, has the grail been found? We'll find out, coming up. Meta has spent upwards of $50 billion developing the metaverse. But will it pay off for the company, its investors, and for CEO Mark Zuckerberg? Over time, I hope that we are seen as a metaverse company. And I want to anchor our work and our identity on what we are building towards. Meta's trillion-dollar business and how we use the internet could hang in the balance. Go inside the company in a new three-part series, From Facebook to Meta, Zuckerberg's Big Bet, in the Tech News Briefing feed from The Wall Street Journal. Last year, many researchers had their hands full with COVID-19. But a group of physicists in Rochester, New York, had set their sights on something entirely different. My name is Ranga Diaz. I'm a professor in physics and mechanical engineering at the University of Rochester. I'm a um, scientist who uh, work on superconducting materials with the goal of finding a superconducting material at room temperature, at room pressure. Diaz became immersed in the quest for superconductivity while he was at Harvard. He was on a team that reported it was the first to create metallic hydrogen. That's hydrogen that changes from a gas to a liquid or a solid when it's cooled to an ultra-low temperature. But hydrogen can also turn into a liquid or solid at slightly higher temperatures if you put it under enough pressure. And it's been theorized for several decades that metallic hydrogen had the potential to become a superconductor. His prior experiences made Diaz eager to try to mix hydrogen with other elements to see if he could achieve superconductivity at room temperature. If that could work, it would be great. Because there's no shortage of hydrogen. It's the most common element in our solar system. So that's where the idea came into the uh, picture. And then a lot of theoretical work people have done, you know, over the years, I would say last five years. But the experimentally, it was very challenging because of this uh, reactive nature of this material and making it to this really higher pressures. Diaz found that by adding some other elements to that hydrogen, he could create a superconductor at 59 degrees Fahrenheit, room temperature. But with a caveat, it had to be done under pressure, a lot of pressure. What we did was that we uh, mix carbon and sulfur one-to-one ratio, and we apply uh, pressure with hydrogen to 4 gigapascal. 4 gigapascals, that's a unit of pressure close to the kind of pressure you'd find at the center of the Earth. 
Diaz's team used special devices called anvils to squeeze the material between two diamonds to achieve this pressure, and the amount of superconducting material was microscopic. Physicists have been playing around with using pressure to change the properties of a material enough to make it a superconductor for a while. But even with the higher pressure, they'd never been able to get the temperature this warm until now. Diaz published his findings in Nature last October, and people were excited, says Tyre Kelly at Caltech. Beautiful paper, by the way. I think this Rochester result just shows you that anybody who's willing to weather the storm, there's great things waiting for you if you're willing to go through with this. But that pressure thing, about two million times what we experience on the surface of Earth, it seems impractical for everyday use. And unlike the copper oxide superconductors that were all the rage at the Woodstock of physics, Diaz's work has been difficult to replicate. So are there naysayers? You bet. We talked to Dr. Marvin Cohen at UC Berkeley about it. Now, in his experiment, there are some unusual properties that are different from standard superconductors. And several theorists, now I'm a theorist, And so, uh, and Jorge Hirsch, he's worried and I'm worried. Yes, I immediately thought this is wrong, this is not superconductivity. Professor Jorge Hirsch does research in condensed matter physics and solid state physics at the University of California, San Diego. He's known as a lone wolf in the scientific community and even has his own theory about superconductivity that often puts him at odds with other physicists. In fact, he's the only physicist we could find who disagrees with the 1950s theory of superconductivity we talked about earlier. Now, Professors Hirsch and Cohen, they rarely agree on anything, but both have concerns about the latest superconductivity research. Hirsch in particular questions whether hydrides or hydrogen bonded to other elements under pressure actually makes a high-temperature superconductor. What really identifies a superconductor is not so much the resistance, but the magnetic properties, what's called the Meissner effect. The Meissner effect. We talked about this earlier. It's the expulsion of magnetic fields from the interior of superconducting materials that allows for things like levitating magnets. To Hirsch, the thing that's fundamental to all superconductors is that they are able to sustain an endless current with this effect. And the magnet flows there forever. It never falls down because the current is circulating without any resistance. And this latest work with hydrogen... Hirsch isn't convinced that this happened. That's the key experiment that you need to show that the hydrogen and the pressure will will have the ability to sustain a persistent current. I would say there is no demonstration that these materials are superconductors. Now, Diaz says he performed calculations that prove it happened, but Hirsch, along with Dr. Marvin Cohen at UC Berkeley, say they want to see this replicated. The point is to try to get the experiment reproduced over and over again. And I certainly hope that they get everything straightened out and it's correct, but we're still waiting for more proof. But it would be really very impressive achievement. So, one step forward, one step back. You'd think by now 
we'd have given up on superconductivity. So why do we keep trying? Well, because, like the Holy Grail, there could be a huge payout if you get it right. That's next. Join the Wall Street Journal at the Future of Everything Festival on May 21st to 23rd in New York City, where diverse global newsmakers share unique perspectives on navigating a changing world. Immerse yourself in live performances, explore pioneering technologies, and indulge in the city's inventive culinary scene. As a podcast listener, enjoy 20% off current ticket rates with code PODCAST. Visit wsj.com slash f-o-e-f podcast to secure your spot. It's been more than 100 years since we were able to observe superconductivity in mercury. Since then, we've come up with some uses for superconducting magnets. Remember, we told you about the maglev trains and the MRIs. So what would achieving superconductivity at room temperature and room pressure really get us? Jamil Tyre-Kelly from Caltech says, first off, we could make MRIs better with higher quality images at lower cost. When you go into an MRI, you have about 30 to 50 kilometers of superconducting wire going around you, and it's cooled by liquid helium. And uh, if you can make a larger magnetic field on the human body, you can image better. And of course, that's better for so many diagnostic reasons. By some estimates, the MRI market is worth more than $5 billion in growing. We'd also be able to improve magnetic trains, which now are only really being used to go short distances in China, Japan, and a few other places, says Dr. Cohen at UC Berkeley. Let's say you had a floating railroad where you had a room temperature superconductor and there's very little friction and the thing could go along at the same speeds as airplanes. And just as far long distance, New York to California. But you could also get to places no one can get to right now, not NASA, not Jeff Bezos, or Elon Musk. We're talking far away places. This is Ranga Diaz's hope. But the one property of this metallic hydrogen is it's, it's a high energy density material. It has in, in a store enormous amount of energy. So you can use as a rocket fuel. So then this is lightest element. So you, you can have a light rocket, which doesn't need all these big tanks. Now you don't need a two-stage uh, space uh, rockets to go to outer space. Single stage is enough. You know, if you're being a little bit more optimistic, maybe forget about Mars, maybe we can go to Jupiter. <laughs> and there are many more potential uses in research, in quantum computing, But maybe the biggest, most profound use for a room temperature, room pressure superconductor would be something a lot more mundane. Just fixing the wires. Again, Dr. Marvin Cohen. Well, what if you went into a hardware store and you say, I want to spool a wire, and they said, you want normal or superconducting? And if you could get to that stage where you could just buy superconducting wires... If those wires were in all of our gadgets, in our computers, our lamps, our toasters, they'd be perfect conductors of electricity. So it wouldn't take as much electricity to run them. And if superconducting wires were connecting our homes to our power plants, then we could save all the electricity that's lost in transmission. That would not only save an incredible amount of energy, it would also save money, potentially billions of dollars. 
and would reduce carbon emissions. Dr. Cohen says it would also solve an even bigger problem, access to energy. Because no electricity would be lost on those transmission wires, we wouldn't have to live close to our power sources. Places that have difficulty keeping the lights on during peak usage times, like California, could get their power from sources that are thousands of miles away. But if you could hook up Niagara Falls to Berkeley and get all the electricity from Niagara Falls to Berkeley without any losses, it would be incredible. Not as sexy as a rocket, but it would change the world as we know it. So how far off are we? Few of our sources were willing to speculate. One suggested that in five years, we could be a lot closer. That said, researchers have been betting on that since 1987, the Woodstock of physics. The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. Stephanie Ilgenfritz is the editorial director of The Future of Everything. Lee Camping-Carter is deputy editor of The Future of Everything. Special thanks to the American Physical Society and IBM Research for use of archival audio. Our fact checker is Maddie Bender. Sound designed for this episode by Sarah Gibble-Laska. Our producer is Casey Georgie. Kateri Yoakum is the Wall Street Journal's executive producer of audio. I'm Janet Babin. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.